guy ran up and said, my wife's in the house at the end of the street. So we, I put on the breathing apparatus, couldn't fit behind the steering wheel. And Andrew, the photographer said, I'll drive. He said, okay. So off we went and went to the door, raced up, all the breathing apparatus, all the gear. And then I knocked on the door and waited. And then this is stupid. So I went to kick it in and the lady opened the door. And the, I remember the back deck was on fire and the smoke alarm was going. And, so I grabbed, her, grabbed the dog, waited for the flames to get down on the driveway. They were sort of blasting over the driveway. So I jumped in the car and said, go to Andrew. And he said, what about the cops? What cops? The ones lying on the ground. They were lying behind the wheels because the sparks and the heat, um, they just had short sleeve shirts. So I helped them get onto the bonnet and said, hold onto the windscreen wipers and off we go. G'day and welcome back to Real Risk, the adventure podcast. Now, for those who enjoy video podcasts, I've engaged with Podbooth here in Adelaide to produce the show, and I'm really excited about how it's going to work. For those who listen in the car or on your daily walk, the audio files, of course, will still be available. My name's Richard Harris, and you might remember me from my involvement in the 2018 Thai Cave Rescue. Well, that adventure has led to many other exciting opportunities, including the chance to chat with like-minded adventurers and risk-takers on this podcast. There's lots of exciting things to announce over the course of the season and plenty of brilliant, daring, adventurous and thoughtful guests already lined up. There'll be more extreme athletes, more divers, more soldiers, more people who get off on going fast, climbing high or challenging themselves in ways most of us can't even dream of. And all of them will talk to us about why they think the benefits outweigh the dangers, why risk is integral to making us stronger, more resilient and better able to cope with the stresses of daily life. And let's face it, when has that ever been more important? G'day, it's great to see you again. Season three is drawing to a close and once again, it's been a great opportunity to talk to people from all walks of life who do amazing things. But only a few of them can claim to be literally trying to save the world. Today's guest is doing just that, fighting fire with fire. The topic is climate change, but don't groan or touch that doll because this guy has dealt with the day-to-day -day impact of the impending disaster for the last 40 or more years. His name is Greg Mullins. Greg fought his first bushfire alongside his dad as a young boy, and he's never looked back. The list of roles and responsibilities are too numerous to mention here, but he has held many senior officers in fire and rescue response, culminating in the position of New South Wales Fire and Rescue Commissioner. But his biggest fight is just beginning as he tries to convince policymakers that there's no time to waste in the race to control emissions from fossil fuels. Wherever you live in the world, I honestly believe this is one conversation you cannot afford to miss. Greg, uh, thanks very much for joining me. It's a real pleasure to meet you. Yeah, hi Harry, you too. <laughs> Hey, I was thinking, because I've just finished reading your book, which I'll give a little plug to now, Firestorm, which has just come out a few months ago. And last night I was thinking as I turned the last page about one of the first books that I read about the fire season, which was February Dragon by Colin Tealy, which I read as a kid. I think it was published in about 1965. And you're a few years older than me, so you probably remember that book. I do. I do. I remember that. And, yeah. and that book by Colin Tealy kind of has always set this premise in my mind that bushfires are a, a middle of summer phenomenon, you know, January, February. And certainly as I grew up as a kid, that was the time in Adelaide and, and South Australia when we thought about bushfires and I, you know, had friends in the hills and everyone was always nervous about bushfires. And I remember seeing the smoke in the hills and I always thought about that book, but, but your book clearly has changed that, that concept for me. And, and I can highly recommend it to anyone with an interest in, in the climate and, and to be frank, some pretty exciting and scary stories about uh, frontline firefighters. So, so we'll talk about that. But, you know, I actually found the book quite hard to read because, because it's very confronting. And I guess congratulations for, for getting your message across so clearly. But let, let's take it back a step. And, and where did all this start for you? Because I know you, through your father, had a very early experience with, with firefighting. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, look, I, I grew up in the northern suburbs of Sydney and we were surrounded by national parks. So summers, most summers in the 1960s, there was smoke on the horizon, orange glows at night. And Dad was a volunteer firefighter, so the bushfire brigade shed was over the road. And he'd explain to me, I'd say, what, do we need to worry about that? And he'd say, no, look at the colour of the smoke, it's white, and a little bit of brown, that's okay. 
that's not burning intensely and the weather's okay. We'll just let that go for a few days. It's doing a good job. But I knew that he explained how when it's hot and dry and windy, they really needed to get onto the fires quickly, put them out because they'd spread and they could cause damage. So I just grew up tuned in to the bushfire risk and my whole family. So when, and when there were big bushfires, it was my brother, my mum and my two sisters on our own with wet sacks and green branches or whatever we could get our hands on because um, there was no town water. We just had tank water, no garden hoses or anything. And dad was off on the local fire truck with a team of local fireys fighting the fire somewhere else. So it was in the blood. Firefighting was in the blood. But 1971, I was 12 years old. That was my first big fire. You know, I, I recount that in the book. He just said, jump in the car, mate, come on. A friend of my brother's was on his own with his sister, teenage sister, and their home was about to be impacted by a big fire that had jumped a creek in the National Park and wasn't supposed to be where it was. And all the fire trucks were on the other side of the world, basically. They were going to take too long to get there. So, yeah, I was hooked from an early age. I was... I found it so interesting, scary, but just really interesting. I mean, that sort of obsession from an early age, you could have gone either way. I guess you could have become an arsonist, but glad you uh, uh, used your powers for good, <laughs> not evil. Look, if you if you flick to the back of the book, um, I do apologise again to my sisters. I think I must have been about four, and my sisters were at school, and I found a box of matches, and they'd built a cubby house, and... When they got home. Oh, good. You got that out of your system early. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that scared the hell out of me. And I, I just remember the flames up in the trees and wow. my mum throwing buckets of water on it. And uh, I was not a very popular brother. <laughs> I, well, what about your dad? What did, what did your old man think about that? Uh, he, dad was just this calm... Uh, not placid, very decisive sort of guy, but he just he he trained generations of firefighters because his leadership skills. You know, later I studied this at uni. You know, what makes a good military commander or emergency services commander? And Dad just had it all. He just the the worse the situation got, the calmer he got. And I remember him sitting me down and just looking me in the eye and say, saying what what happened then why did you do that you know what what do you think could have happened and you know it could have ended up really bad and and i just thought oh yeah and so i was he taught me <laughs> rather than admonishing me or whatever it was you know and I, I thought mm, i don't ever want to do that again yeah it sounds like he handled that very well and uh, left a indelible lesson upon you so that's great yeah um, yep. what did he do for a living so dad he was in the Air Force during World War II, so he flew in Catalina flying boats and he was a, what was he, an air uh, fitter to a, or something. He was a flight mechanic and a gunner. Um, he had to crawl down a tunnel at the back and with a machine gun, so he was a little bit deaf. After the war, they retrained people when they came back and he retrained as a carpenter. And look, he was a very smart man. I think I think he would have liked to have been a doctor like you. But just kept studying and became a clerk of works. Then he was teaching that at TAFE as well as building things during the day as a builder. But he, he ended up running half of the New South Wales Department of Public Works. He was a senior works supervisor for half of New South Wales and built lots of high schools, primary schools. And interestingly, some of those schools that he built, my mum later taught at. Uh, she was a school teacher. So a very practical guy and just... Nothing was a worry. It was, uh, you know, and I realise now, I look back, at, you know, in my 60s and, you know, I see a lot of my dad in, in me. <laughs> I know other people have said that, but I never did. But I realise he just instilled in me. I remember he had this favourite saying, if something's really hard to do, it'll take a long time. If it's impossible, it'll take a little while longer. And that was that was his sort of attitude to life. Yeah. Nothing was too hard. What I find fascinating about talking about your father in the book is his understanding of, of the bush and nature and the way he observed things and how that helped him with his understanding of fires. And I think like the Indigenous people of Australia, who obviously have a, a much greater level of understanding again, but 
that knowledge seems to have given him that kind of edge in terms of understanding and predicting what was going to happen. It seems like he imparted a lot of that to you as well. Yeah, so every year I'd sneak into discussions with the old timers locally who knew everything about fires and Dad had a particular affinity with this guy called Len Rhodes who, interesting character, had no teeth and he'd sit there and suck his gums and just look at things and he'd get gum leaves and light them and hold them upside down and go, hmm, hmm. But they'd talk about what the fire season was going to do and Dad would take me out of the bush. Well, Mum and Dad, Mum knew the botanical name of every plant in the bush and what the weeds were. We'd be pulling out weeds when we went bushwalking, um, what the animals did, a lot of Aboriginal history. But Dad would point out when certain trees were flowering and say, look, that's about a month early. That's not a good sign. That means we're probably going to have a hot summer. He'd watch ants and say, well, look, they're all heading for high ground. It's going to rain within the next five days. And it, it always would. There was a bird, he called the rain bird. If it, it was a coel, actually, I found out later, but it would have this mournful sort of tone. And if he did, it did that at dusk, he said, oh, it'll rain within the next three days. And he was spot on. So he could pick the fire seasons up until the mid-1990s. And then he couldn't. And he just said, I, I don't know what's going on. Things have changed. Well, so let's jump ahead to, I think it was 1993 fire season. And, and by then you'd become a professional firefighter. What, actually, just tell us about, about that. What was, the, what was the point that you decided to take this interest from being a volunteer, young volunteer fiery into, the, into a career? Well, I, I, that first fire in 1971, I was 12 years old and the local brigade that Dad was in, Terry Hills, which was over the road, they wouldn't take anyone until they were 16. But down the road, a small suburb, Duffy's Forest, not a lot of people lived there. And my brother said to me at the time, yeah, well, they'll take anyone. So they'll even take you. <laughs> and they did at 13. So I became a volunteer at 13. When I was 16, I transferred to Terry Hills with Dad. And I, we fought a lot of fires together. But going through high school, coming up the high school certificate, you know, was do I go and do... I was actually going to do marine biology at uni or forestry, and but no, I wanted to be a firefighter. So I applied straight after my high school certificate exam. I applied for the full-time fire brigade, March 1971, 31st of March 1971, uh, 78, sorry. I walked into the fire brigade training college and became a full-time firefighter. So for the next 39 years, <laughs> that's what I did. And that was, was the equivalent, um, was that the equivalent of... South Australia's MFS, the Metropolitan Fire Service. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Metropolitan Fire Service, but a bit different. MFS is mainly Adelaide, New South Wales Fire Brigade, as it was at the time. I changed the name to Fire and Rescue New South Wales when I was commissioner later on, but it was every large town in New South Wales, so about 330, 340 stations, about 7,000 firefighters. Half of those were retained on call, half were full-time. So it's about the fourth biggest urban fire service in the world. Mm. So then we sort of march forward to 1993 and you mentioned that was the first time that you, your old man said something's, something's different. At the moment, it's November in Sydney. It's an unstable weather period. Um, I'd watch late October, early November. Dad taught me to do this every year, see what the weather was going to do. The storms would come, but sometimes the moisture would just set in and that would mean, no, we're fine in Sydney, Blue Mountains. We're not going to get major fires. The, the fire weather will move south as um, the, where high-pressure systems are moves down and the fire, fire weather will go past us because it used to be sequential, go from north to south over months. That's another story. But this, this particular year, 1993, we had heavy rain in November and we'd been getting some fires from August, um, nothing too bad, but they were being problematic to round up and there was a whole lot going on there. I could talk about the Haynes Index, unstable atmosphere and everything, which we didn't really understand back then, but there was stuff going on climatically that wasn't <laughs> within our knowledge base at the time. We moved on. I went on holidays over Christmas. We were away camping in Gloucester Tops, north of Newcastle, but then all of a sudden it stopped raining, early December. And 
looking back now, it wasn't in the literature in those days, but we had a flash drought. So very high temperatures, the high evaporation rates, rather than a long-term build-up to drought, we had the bush was suffering drought, the plants were stressed, trees were dropping bark and branches and leaves and increasing the fuel loads, and it was just ready to go. Then in early January 1994, hot weather set in for, I think we had about four days, uh, which was very unusual. We'd had two days together before, but not three or four or more. We, we actually had weeks of bad fire weather with, in a cycle and fires became well established across the state. So didn't see it coming. And I remember, you know, dad was shaking his head. He was out fighting fires too as a volunteer. And uh, I got called back from holidays and Lane Cove National Park was in charge of firefighting there. Then when that was dealt with, back to Terry Hills where I used to fight fires, the Blue Mountains. So it was a it was a big year. So in the book you talk about, I think you're a district officer driving around during those fires, kind of gaining intelligence and helping out where needed. And you went out to Macquarie Park. Um, just tell us the story about that day. Yeah, we, we thought we had this fire. So we pulled it up. But it's near Macquarie University for those who don't know Sydney, northern suburbs. And it's quite in a city. So there's a Lane Cove National Park is a river valley, a ribbon of bush that runs through suburbia to within about five kilometres of oh, six or seven kilometres of the city centre. And this fire, the northwesterly wind was driving it through the river valley. So houses, thousands, hundreds of houses perched above bushland. So it had been burning all day. We thought we had it rounded up and then all of a sudden the wind just became gale force and a radio message said, look, the fire's broken out behind you. We'd dealt with a big outbreak and cut it off. Look behind me, black smoke, and I thought, oh, here we go. Headed there. They'd just taken 10 fire engines off me to send north to the central coast where they were also losing homes. And I, I just didn't have enough fire trucks. But then saw some yellow ones on the side of the road. thought, that's odd. Uh, they were from Canberra. And said, follow me. We didn't have radio communication, but pulled up at a block of units. There was a three-storey block of units, and one of the ground floor units was well ablaze. No fire trucks. I was on my own in my command car. And then three fire trucks turned up. <laughs> Thank you, God. And an old friend, actually, he retired last week, Jim Hamilton. He retired as Deputy Commissioner of Fire and Rescue. He was an instructor at the training college and the fire engines were full of new recruits who are about to graduate with a, an experienced driver and, a, and an officer. So Jim and his crew were able to save a block of units. Uh, but after that, the fire just blasted to the east and, or southeast and um, I think lost 17 homes in the next couple of hours and about 34 badly damaged. And you just couldn't pull it up. And, yeah, and there were some pretty hairy situations, very interesting. They're just driving through the flames and, you know, a woman trapped in a house that was burning. You know, there's lots went on over the next couple of hours. It was a bit of a blur. Yeah. In your book, you talk about finding a couple of policemen uh, sort of stranded and there was no room in the in the car for them to, to get them out. Yeah. So we, we, we pulled up to this and we being, I found this photographer in the middle of the highway lying down with the wind and sparks blowing over him in the smoke. I thought, what are you doing here? He said, they closed the road and I was going to hitch a ride to get out of here. And I said, jump in. I said, there. He gave him a street directory. He said, you're a navigator. So we, anyway, cut a long story short, although it was a short time, but a lot happened. We had the fire going over the road, made him lie down as we drove through the flames. But saw two big spot fires at the base of a hill racing up a slope towards some homes and get me up there and, and we got there would have been about six houses alight already explosions or power lines sparking all over the road and a guy ran up and said my wife's in the house at the end of the street so we i put on the breathing apparatus couldn't fit behind the steering wheel and andrew the photographer said i'll drive i said okay so off we went and Went to the door, and I never forget. I always think this is bizarre. I'm, nowhere, I'm glad no one filmed it. Braced up, all the breathing apparatus, all the gear, and then I knocked on the door and waited. And then this is stupid. So I went to kick it in, and the lady opened the door. And the, I remember the back 
deck was on fire and the smoke alarm was going. And so I grabbed her, grabbed the dog, waited for the flames to get down on the driveway. They were sort of blasting over the driveway. Ran out to the car, threw the dog in the back, and there's Barry, her husband. I thought, he didn't come down with us, did he? What had happened, they'd gone up in a back street, come down through people's gardens. So I jumped in the car and said, go to Andrew. And he said, what about the cops? What cops? The ones lying on the ground. They were lying behind the wheels because the sparks and the heat, um, they just had short sleeve shirts. So I helped them get onto the bonnet and said, hold onto the windscreen wipers. And off we go. Off we went and got out of there. They couldn't have walked out because of the power lines and mm. just the heat. They wouldn't have made it. So, yeah, it was interesting. <laughs> I mean, you must have countless stories like this over over a career of of firefighting of of you know literally being in flames driving through flames having you know of course now we we've all got the benefit of youtube to watch some of these these fire scenes and burnovers and and stuff is that about as close as you know you've you've come on a day like that or have there been worse situations to be honest and i'm not trying to be dramatic but i I've, you almost lose count one of the things with Structure fires, uh, when people are trapped, often they're trapped above a fire and above a fire is not a good place to be. But if you're first in, that's where your rescue efforts have to be because smoke and heat go up and they're going to die pretty quickly if you don't get them out. So I worked in the inner city for years and terrace houses, old terrace houses. And, and you, yeah, there were quite a few. And one in particular where we got stuck above a fire, a shop in uh, the inner city near the Queen Victoria building and couldn't get out, couldn't make it to the windows because the floor started to burn through and flames were coming up. But our teammates saved us. You know, they, they knew we were up there and were able to get to us. But And buried under a collapsing ceiling, having to be dug out at a multi-storey building fire in North Sydney one night, um, nearly fell down a lift shaft at a open lift shaft at a burning building that there's just so many situations and you think ah, but bushfire fighting Blackheath and I remember the date 21st of December 2019 I after that it was an intense it was a 23 hour day from station to station I got really badly dehydrated and I should have been in the hospital getting IV fluids but just left it too late and I was quite unwell for a few days but uh, that that was just so intense. And during Black Summer, you know, multiple days, New Year's Eve in Batemans Bay with a pyroconvective storm. So a fire-generated thunderstorm above us with lightning and winds coming from every direction and buildings blazing all around us. And it was, if people say they're not frightened by things they experience when they're firefighting, they're either not telling the truth or they haven't really done it or oh, I don't know what's wrong because it's bloody scary. <laughs> and even just a bedroom fire in a house, it's um, your heart's just thumping. You know, if you find someone, you've, you've got to go in pitch black and feel your way and the house is basically collapsing around you, electric wires hanging down. It's And if your air runs out, you know about this, about air running out. If your air runs out, you mm. yeah. It's all over. So, well, I certainly, under, I certainly understand that that feeling of fear going into a you know a situation that that's that's hazardous. Although in my case, it's been you know I worked with South Australian Ambulance in the medical retrieval section for a number of years, and you know even when it's not me that's in danger, but you're going to an incident where there is one or more people who are critically injured. You know that that feeling of stress and anxiety builds and builds as you approach the scene and. You know, you're not sure what you're going to find, and then you, you step out of the aircraft or the or the ambulance, and and you, and then you go into work mode. And from that point on, it, it sort of gets easier, I think. But certainly, that that anticipation is 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 significant. And you know, for me, it was never me that was really in danger. Although on one occasion, I was working at the coordination centre in Adelaide Ambulance Coordination, and it was the day of the Pinery fires, and uh, in 2015. And that was my first experience of having to coordinate and send other people into danger. And actually, I found that extremely stressful. You know, from inexperience, clearly, uh, in working in a fire situation, being fed these fire ground maps from the CFS person in the incident management room and, and then trying to work out 
without really any training specifically in that to where it was safe to send retrieval teams because there had been some bad injuries and a couple of fatalities on that day. So it may, I, I was reflecting on that again as I read your book and thinking about the roles that you and others serve and that, that feeling like an army or a military commander sending people into danger. I think in some ways that's far more stressful and maybe takes more of a toll perhaps than than going to dangerous situations yourself what are your thoughts on that uh look to be honest harry that's one of the main reasons i retired quite early i i'd been commissioner for almost 14 years i was 57 i could have gone on my contract had years to run but i just knew time time was up because I, I my pager would go off at two in the morning and i'd uh, my heart would jump and i'd think no, please don't, not one of my guys or girls, because we'd, we'd lost some people in previous years. You know, a wall collapse at a pub fire in the west of New South Wales, a few other situations, and every injury and death of a firefighter, um, you know, hits the command team really hard. And, and I've got to say, the person at the top probably hits them the hardest. I, I felt responsible for every single one of my second family and I didn't I didn't really want that responsibility anymore so I but I left and became a volunteer firefighter and now I'm back in a sort of volunteer command role but go figure that's what I do I suppose yeah um well leaders lead yeah. and uh, I'm sure they're lucky to have you still oh look it's great and they're all you you work you know in that field people who just give just keep giving and that's they're wonderful to be around and you know we spoke earlier i'm chair of the ambulance board i'm in awe of the paramedics out there and particularly through covid what they've done but the whole health system and they're all cut from the same cloth firefighters police ambulance nurses doctors i think they've all got similar personality traits i just want to help now i'm jumping around a bit with these significant fires that that are kind of following you mentioned pyroconvective storms and just want to talk a little bit about the Canberra fires in 2003 because I understand that's the first time this phenomenon became recognised. Well, well, look, no, it, it was recognised as a thing. And, and so my dad had talked about 1939, the heat wave in January 1939. And, and as a teenager in central west New South Wales, he fought fires during that heat wave, which uh, you know, scorched Victoria, South Australia, New South Wales massive bushfires but he talked about seeing the smoke column turn into a thunderhead and then lightning coming out but no rain and I thought oh yeah sure and then I started reading and in US literature there was a bit about it you know in the 1980s I suppose it was a very very rare thing now what happens is when the fire gets extremely intense the convection column so the heat coming from the flames pushes up through the atmosphere. If the atmosphere is unstable, so the smoke and gases and water vapour to go up in, into the stratosphere 12, 10, 12, 14 kilometres up, when it does that, it condenses and it starts to act as a chimney, bringing up hot air and a, and a thunderstorm forms from the water vapour in the, in the smoke plume. And it behaves just like a normal thunderstorm, but there's usually not enough water vapour for it to rain. So you get downdrafts and violent wind squalls, just like a normal thunderstorm, and you get lightning, which can start new fires 20, 30 kilometres away. But if you're underneath it, it's bloody scary um, because the wind comes from every direction. So your normal risk assessment, you go, it's a westerly. We're going to expect a southerly change later on, so we better keep away from the northern flank. But all that goes out the window if you've got a pyroconvective storm. Canberra. What happened, there were three three fires from memory converged and that when the plumes interacted, went into the stratosphere, brought down very strong winds from above that were very dry and it formed a, started to twist, started, formed a fire tornado about 200 metres wide, snapped off large trees like toothpicks. So it was just this devastation it ripped roofs off houses and then the sparks went in set the houses alight so we had 487 homes burned uh, four people lost their lives fire engines burnt it was a catastrophe and it made worldwide news because it was the first recorded major fire tornado and the winds of 200 kilometers per hour on the ground that was unusual but going forward so black saturday 2009 
in Victoria, uh, King Lake, Victoria. Uh, I think 159 people died there under a pyroconvective storm. There was no escape. Uh, the wind's coming from every and a violent downburst as a storm collapsed. Between 1978-2018, there were 60 events in Australia. That's from the satellite record. Black summer in six months, there were between 35 and 39. They're still looking at the satellite data. So 40 years, there were 60. In six months, we had nearly 40. So it, that, that just showed the intensity of the weather, the dryness of the fuels, and the, the unprecedented intensity of the fires driving these plumes up into the stratosphere. That tornado that forms, is that actually does that contain fire or is it just wind which might suck a bit of fire in occasionally or is it just a thing like a fire, a flaming tornado? Look, if you watched it, it's, it's mainly smoke. It's the convection column of the fire and it starts to twist, just about the wind coming in from different directions and it's usually in rugged mountainous territory where they form. Um, so it ch channels the winds. But what you'll find is fire gases from eucalypt oil, for example, get superheated. You'll see the black smoke. And you, you can see fireballs 100 metres up in that plume or just explode. You'll just see. So, yes, you can. Uh, the, the tornado can have fire in it. There'll be fire at base where there's huge flames and the Smoke will be orange and brown and black, but you'll you'll just see fireballs bursting high up in that in that plume because it's superheated and it reaches ignition temperature, or there's a burning branch that's been taken up. And that eucalyptus oil will just explode. So it's very very scary. I remember at the time of the Canberra fires, either talking to someone or seeing reports in the media about sheets of flame crossing the ground where there was no fuel at all uh, and just kind of being like everything's so hot, the flames are just sort of self-sustained crossing crossing the ground and that's why it was so destructive within suburbia. Is that is that the case? Yeah, look, uh, and, and this has been known for since the 1950s on days of extreme fire danger and now we've got another we changed the fire danger rating system in after the 2009 fires to put in catastrophic, which is off the scale. It was a scale of one to 100 for fire danger and regularly now because of climate change, uh, it exceeds that maximum value. So that's catastrophic. But on those days, fires will burn over burnt ground. There will, every bit of organic matter in the soil will burn. People's lawns will burn. The gardens will burn. And fire will keep going for about 100 metres without any fuel if they're wind-driven like that on in extreme hot, dry conditions. And ahead of that is a wave of burning hot sparks and embers and burning twigs, branches, leaves. So it'll start new spot fires further ahead anyway. So you, that's why it's so difficult. Our traditional tools of hazard reduction aren't as effective in those worst years and on those worst days anymore. And we've always known that, but the number of days of extreme fire danger in the past were far less than we get now. We're going to go on to talk about, you know, your next big fight, which is more of a political one and the, and the discussion of, of climate change and the effect on, on the fire seasons. And, and personally, I feel like that's the most courageous part of your, your career because I think, you know, putting yourself in harm's way is one thing, but putting your, your reputation on the, on the line is, is in a way far more difficult. But before we do that, just let's just have a talk about the 2019-2020 Black Summer, which of course is very much still in our, our memories and, and, you know, those images of the fire maps on the, on the news from, was it from October? or November in 2019 until February, just it seemed like half the country, and in South Australia's case, literally half of Kangaroo Island on fire, and uh, we all know someone, I think, that's been affected by these fires. Just tell us about that summer. So, look, we, we, we had a near miss in 2018. I don't think Queenslanders or Tasmanians would like me saying near miss because they had devastating fires that went for months, but New South Wales, we started in August. There were homes being lost in early August. And luckily, we got to that October, November period and the rain came in, storms came in and it stayed fairly damp But on the east coast. But, and that saved us. We were able to provide firefighters to Queensland and Tasmania. 
it was pretty obvious to former fire and existing fire chiefs that 2019 could be the big year because drought had set in. And fires actually started in Queensland and New South Wales in July. So in winter, that's unprecedented. So the, the first big fire of the season was near Port Macquarie and it was a, a dried out swamp because of the drought. The peat was burning and every day that it was hot and windy, fire would pop up, set the scrub on the top of light and off it would go. And that wasn't able to be put out until it rained months later in 2020. But that, then the Northern Tablelands caught a light, Southeast Queensland, Southwest Queensland or Southern Queensland, Mackay, up as far as Mackay, trop, subtropical rainforest was burning by August. September, we had fire in northern New South Wales, higher than anything that had ever been experienced, even in high summer in those spots. So before the start of the official bushfire season on 1st of October, it exceeded the historical worst fire weather ever recorded and homes were being lost. So it was way into cat catastrophic and up extreme and catastrophic up in that northern area so it just built built from there and uh we we ended up with a situation where every state and territory was simultaneously burning and what that did we couldn't share firefighting resources and the south australian bushfire inquiry notes how they sent people to new south wales and so some of their senior command people who could have been used at home so you had the cuddly creek and then kangaroo island and other fires and so their resources were depleted and when they asked for interstate help nobody could send any help because you know hundreds thousands of homes were burning in victoria new south wales queensland so there was just no help available and that that's our new reality our whole operational doctrine about sharing resources not just in australia but internationally the large aircraft we use come from california canada and their fire seasons over, overlap with ours now, which uh, because we're getting longer fire seasons because it's hotter and drier. So it was before these fires started and you'd just retired uh, and you were increasingly concerned and, and, and knowledgeable because you'd done overseas training and fellowships, uh, looking at fire grounds all around the world and, and learning from other countries that the fire situations there were increasingly worrying the same as you know that people here were talking about and and uh, i think it was in in 2019 before this fire season that you formed this group the emergency leaders for climate action tell us about that group yeah so look i i was approached in 2018 by the climate council of australia they asked me if I'd become a counsellor because they had people with different areas of expertise and they wanted somebody who knew about bushfires and natural disasters. And I'd been a member of the New South Wales government's climate, uh, climate change committee since 2007 for about 10 years. So I was known in that space as chair of the State Emergency Management Committee. I'd formed a climate adaptation committee some years before, so I could I was known in the climate space already. I remember speaking to of Climate Council, Amanda McKenzie and the head researcher, Martin Rice, and saying, look, I think 2019's going to be a disaster. And I, I've got this idea about forming a, a group of former fire chiefs to try and draw attention to it and try and get something done. What do you think? So they gave, gave a bit of advice. I started ringing around. In a very short period, I had 23 former chiefs and deputy chiefs of every fire service in Australia, urban and rural, um, number of forestry and national parks, fire. Cumulatively, I don't know, maybe a thousand years of experience. And each and every one of them said the same thing. They've just watched over their long careers, things get worse and worse. And, and some of the SES commissioners were saying, look, floods are getting worse. And, you know, the simple physics there is that for one degree temperature rise, um, the atmosphere holds 7% more moisture, which in, self, in itself is a greenhouse gas to be, has a greenhouse effect as well, but it means the downpours are more violent, so you get flash flooding, the weather patterns have changed, so you don't get the gentle rain over winter, winter rains, huge reductions, but you get these violent downpours, more violent cyclones and storms. So. They all signed up. We we tried to tell the Prime Minister in April and May 2019, but history records how well that went. 
Yeah, well, and this is really well outlined in, in the book, you know, your efforts and, and your attempts to warn the government about what was potentially on the horizon. And, and sadly, you were right. And I'm sure no one was more disappointed than you guys were that uh, your prophecies were, were correct. But it made me think, uh, and, and you talk about this, you know, about the tradition of, of resource sharing that you've mentioned, but and but also with, you know, overseas firefighters like the United States. And, you know, we, we had been sending firefighters to California, I think, and vice versa. And you, you talked about the aircraft that we were getting over from the from the States. And, and now as their fire season is overlapping with ours, you're saying that we can't you know, take those resources or send ours. Actually, we're even seeing that in the pandemic at the moment, whether this is sort of, you know, the seems like the Federation's actually not working very well for us during these these periods, is it? Because, you know, we don't even want to send you guys vaccinations when New South Wales was in the depth of the, the pandemic because, you know, we're, we're scared that we're not going to have enough for ourselves. And, you know, the states have suddenly become almost opponents uh, through necessity in a, in a way. And that, that sense of collaboration is being lost, which I think, you know, is a is quite sad on a number of levels. But, you know, it's every man for himself at the moment and, and a lot of this has been driven by the virus or or by the climate. So I've gone off track a bit there, but it, it is a disturbing trend for for so many reasons. You talk to the governor government about, you know, the need for more resources like aircraft and so forth, but that seemed to fall on deaf ears. Yeah, look, and that was bizarre because it was such an easy fix. It was a minuscule amount of money that the existing fire chiefs were asking for. And look, they, they'd, after the 2016 fires in Tasmania, areas that had never burned in history for millions of years burned because they've dried out the wet rainforests, the highlands, the World Heritage Area, always damp. And uh, so huge fires through there. So they needed more firefighting aircraft. And so there was a Senate inquiry which recommended that Australia have its own capability because of this overlap. The government just rejected that. So the fire chiefs, the peak council for fire authorities in Australia and New Zealand, put a detailed business case to the government in 2018 pleading for just $11 million more so that they could lease some large aircraft for a bit longer and a couple of extra. And they just said no. So we reiterated that, said, we've, look, it's burning all, you know, it's, we had fires right up to March, it's going to kick off early again. We didn't realise just how early and we didn't realise just how bad because history is no longer a predictor of the future. It was just magnitudes worse than I could imagine and that that's what's happening with climate change. So the government just, it was like, they were so angry that we spoke up and the personal attacks, uh, you know, it was just um, quite bizarre and really not even worth commenting on, but the, the insults from, you know, Deputy Prime Minister, Deputy Premier in New South Wales, uh, personal insults and then people like Alan Jones saying that, you know, fire chiefs commenting on bushfires that's outside their area of expertise, but Alan knows about them. So it was it was quite bizarre. And we just kept on doing what we were doing and trying to be reasonable and work with the government and give them the opportunity to speak. And eventually, because the media pressure got too much, they met with us in December 2019, but it was too late. And it was very obvious. They had a press conference while we were still in Parliament House to tell everybody that they'd met with the former fire chiefs and it was just a, you know, we ticked that box and the Prime Minister would not go near us. Well, I know they're all also saying, which is a very effective strategy to say, well, why do we want to talk to these, you know, has-beens when we're in constant communication with the current, you know, leaders in, in, in emergency services? And that's a very okay. effective way of kind of putting you back in your box, isn't it? Yeah, if it's true. I, you know, in my book, I talk about some freedom of information requests that we put in after the Prime Minister said exactly that. He was asked on ABC Radio, why won't you meet with Greg Mullins and the former chiefs? He said, because we've met with them. We're getting the same advice. That was interesting because we're in constant contact with the existing chiefs and nobody, everyone said, well, we didn't meet with him back in April or no, there's been no meetings. Um, so 
the freedom of information request was for diary entries, briefing notes, attendance lists, and of course it came back saying no such records could be found. He also said that's why we put the extra money in towards the aircraft. And so uh, the other FOI was about, well, how much and when, and there was no information on file with that either. You know, you could argue some agencies like Emergency Management Australia were in contact with the fire services, and they were. But the briefings, the Royal Commission found, you know, the information wasn't getting to the top. The National Crisis Committee only met twice, I think, in November and then in January. So there was no sense of urgency in Canberra, and it was all uh, it's a states and territories problem. But this was a na- national disaster. Your request or recommendation was for an $11 million spend to get some more aircraft over. What do you think the fires cost the economy and the country? Well, so billions just in tourism. So I think um, Deloitte, I can't remember the figure, but but it was a horrendous amount, tens of billions of dollars hit to the economy just in that season. And it's getting worse. They're saying that each year it's about $1.1 billion. So the price, and I I, I actually get very frustrated when I hear politicians saying, we're not going to take action on climate change until we know the price and until there's a plan. And A, federal government is the body that's supposed to make the national plan, not you and me. And, you know, they've got a very professional public service ready, willing and able to do this, but they're not being tasked by the government. And the cost of inaction has overtaken the cost of action. So if they'd actually got on with the job of transferring to a cleaner, greener economy, you know, eventually it would have driven down the the cost of of disasters. But it's just escalating every year. And I talk in the book about Blue Mountains in Sydney. It used to be 10, 11 years between serious fire seasons where we'd lose a lot of property. That's that's the weather patterns. Now it's five or six, every five or six. And they're worse, far worse, far longer and far worse than they used to be in the past. So the costs are just escalating. This government just really not interested in taking the sort of actions that other governments around the world are willing to take. So I have a sense that we're, you know, you could throw as much money as you like at firefighting per se, and it's actually not going to fix this problem. You, you, you we're still just in in damage control mode from now on until we can reduce the temperature and the and the dryness of the fuel and, and the things that are generating and, and, and pushing these fires out of control. Strategies that address issues like obesity will drive down diabetes and, and healthcare costs, for example. And the, so if you, it's the same with natural disasters. If you actually invest in hardening infrastructure like electricity, some Batemans Bay on New Year's Eve, we lost power because hundreds of kilometres of power poles burnt through and fell down Gippsland, Mallacoota, the same thing. No power meant no water, air conditioning, no refrigeration, no communication. The mobile networks fell down, radio networks fell down. It's so vulnerable. So investing in resilience and can really pay off a lot. So, you know, and I say in my book, and it might sound strange coming from a firefighter who's a former fire chief, you, you need, we need to invest in response, but at some stage, it just becomes wasted money. It's just more and more toys that on the worst days won't make that much difference. We need to subsidise people to build homes above the current standards. Current standards for bushfire prone areas need to be reworked because fire conditions we experienced were so much worse than anything in the past. There's just so much to be done out there. I could go, you know, talk for an hour about all the different things need to be done, local refuges for people to go to in small towns. There's so much that needs to be invested in but, and at the same time drive down emissions because the Royal Commission said things are going to get worse until mid-century because of emissions already in the atmosphere. What happens after that depends entirely on what we do now. If we cut emissions deeply, temperatures might stabilise and eventually go down. But if we don't, they'll just continue going up. Greg, you hardly strike me like, a, you know, you're not exactly a, a bearded hippie with uh, dreadlocks and uh, sitting on the beach at Byron, you know, smoking a joint. You're not, 
some some people <laughs> sort of have that caricature of someone who's obsessed with climate and climate change. But I feel like science and evidence is on the nose at the moment. And uh, we're seeing that it seems to start, not start with, but we saw it very strongly with the President Trump in the United States with his claims about, you know, treatments for COVID and all these, all these completely off-piste ideas, you know, putting down Dr. Fauci and not supporting the, the science around him. And it seems like if, you, if, you're a, if you're a believer in science and evidence, now you're kind of in the wacky left, whereas it used to be something to be admired. For me, you know, the new heroes are the, the public health officers, people like Shane Fitzsimmons in the last round of fires and the epidemiologists and the vaccinologists. They, these are the, the current heroes of our age. And for some reason, people like yourself and these other people I've talked about are not getting the, the credit and the credibility that that is deserved. And there's obviously very powerful influences at work to, to very carefully manage that, I feel, um, and without getting into sort of the conspiracies or politics too much. I think it's it continues to be a very disturbing time to live in in that regard. So I hope that uh, you will continue with this with this fight, uh, this very courageous fight, because without very loud voices like yourself, you know these other forces of evil might overwhelm us. And uh, again, I will strongly encourage people to read this book Firestorm that you've written because we've only just scratched the surface particularly in terms of the evidence and the science that you're talking about. And it's absolutely very well chronicled in here, even with a bibliography at the end, which makes a, a medical man like myself very happy to see all the references at the back. So it's all there to be read and, and understood. So I just want to say thanks again, Greg, for what you're doing and, and for coming on the show today. It's been really insightful. Thank you. And uh, thanks, Harry. And I'll, I have to say you're, you're my hero. So I've read your book and um, watched with bated breath everything unfold in Thailand and my daughter-in-law's Thai. Yeah, yeah, it's been such a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you. Well, that was a one-week campaign doing something I quite enjoy, but it pales into insignificance to, compared to a 40-year campaign on the fire front. So uh, good on you. Thanks, Greg. Oh, thank you. Well, that's the show for today. Thanks for joining me. If you want any more information, you can check out the podcast website at realriskpodcast.com. <laughs>